verse 1. I usually try not to go into a, a new chapter unless, you know, you really need to go there, which we really do as far as the, the break here. So uh, let's note here as far as what we're looking at in the book here. The theme is the just shall live by faith. What a great line uh, quoted in the New Testament. Uh, comes out of the book of Habakkuk. And uh, so that's the theme. The outline is we first, uh, first uh, couple, a few verses there, Habakkuk's first question, then God's first answer. And now we're at Habakkuk's second question. And uh, let's uh, review just as far as a summary of what we're looking at. Habakkuk's question was this, Yahweh, why do you continue to allow flagrant iniquity to go on among your people? So, you know, he said, boy, we've got all this corruption, all this wickedness going on. Uh, why are you allowing that to happen? And then um, God's answer. I'm raising up the Chaldeans to judge my people. It's not like I'm not doing anything. I am doing something. I'm raising up the Chaldeans. They're going to come in judgment on your people. And God told Habakkuk to look among the nations and to be utterly astounded. And then what God told him what he was going to do in raising up the Chaldeans, had exactly this effect on Habakkuk. He was astounded, as we see in our text tonight. So let's pick it up, chapter 1, verse 12. Here's Habakkuk's response. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O Rock, you have marked them for correction. This is an interesting verse. Habakkuk starts really from a position of faith, which is where people of faith really begin in their struggles and the things that they wrestle with to try to understand and try to figure out the perplexities of life. This is the right place to start. Starts from a position of faith. Uh, David Jeremiah has a good quote here, and he says this, a clear focus on what a believer knows about God and not the why behind his or her circumstances is the starting point for any question about God's will and work. Ah, I like that. Uh, the starting point is what we know about God. That's where you want to start and, and deal with whatever is troubling you. So Habakkuk began his response by acknowledging the character of God. The kind of God that God is. He asks a question, but it really expects an affirmative answer, affirming the truth of what is being stated here about God. And notice where he begins, verse 12 there. Are you not from everlasting? Uh, recognizing that God is eternal in his nature. Closely related, he then addressed God as Lord, uh, which is the name Yahweh. He literally says, oh, Yahweh, my God. And you understand for a Jew to use the name Yahweh was to use the most sacred name for God. Uh, what we commonly call the covenant name of God. Because Yahweh is linked with God's covenant commitment to his people. The name Yahweh really emphasizes uh, his eternality. That he's the same forever. He doesn't change. His character doesn't change. And that's why he can be trusted. To keep his promises, his covenant, commitments. So it too is, it emphasizes his eternality and that he is unchanging. He is the eternal, unchanging, faithful God of Israel. And Habakkuk makes it personal. Notice he says, O Lord, my God. And then he continues here in verse 12. 
and says, my holy one. Again, it's personal. My holy one. Holy means set apart, meaning that God is totally unique and there is none other like him. He is incomparable. And as holy, he is the standard of all that is, that is pure and right. So note uh, the threefold emphasis. Uh, God's character. He's eternal, which Habakkuk the prophet is acknowledging. Uh, Lord Yahweh emphasizes his covenant faithfulness. And holy, he is set apart. This is the foundation on which faith builds. And on this basis, Habakkuk says, we shall not die. You catch the flow in verse 12. Everlasting, you are from everlasting. Uh, O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. The existence of the people of God depends on who God is. Because of who He is as eternal Yahweh, the promises of God to the patriarchs and the people of Israel are secure. God is not going anywhere. He is eternal. I want to encourage you tonight. The eternal God remains eternal. He's not going anywhere. He's not changing. He is faithful as Yahweh. This is his very nature. He is Yahweh, uh, the covenant God of Israel, the God who keeps his covenant promises. He's not going anywhere. He's not changing. And he is holy. He will fulfill his promises. This truth right here, I think, is so important. I've made it a major emphasis in my ministry as far as uh, the covenant theology folks, uh, the replacement theology folks. It says, you know, God has decided to wash his hands of Israel. He's done with Israel. And now he's, you know, he's decided to focus on the church. And in fact, they say the church really, you see, is now spiritual Israel. Well, boy, the problem, the mega, mega, mega problem I have with that is if that's true, it really um, destroys the very character of God's faithfulness and trustworthiness. Does he really keep his covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? No, he doesn't. But to us Gentiles now in the church, oh yeah, we can depend on him to be there. Uh, what a gross inconsistency this is. And uh, you say, well, you're kind of bashing those people. Not, no, I'm just bashing their theology, Okay. Uh, I mean, uh, it's such a a serious, blasphemous error. It really is. It really is blasphemous as far as the very character of God is impinged upon there. Well, they, uh, saying this, uh, have a major, major problem. The major problem with this is that it completely destroys the character of God, as as I have said. And it destroys the starting point of Habakkuk. Habakkuk's having a major problem. He can't figure it out. And yet he reaffirms the kind of God that God is. That's where he starts. I like this starting point. You can start whatever you're wrestling with. You can start here. Start where Habakkuk starts. I mean, and he was very troubled. And yet he still knew the character of God was not changing. He couldn't understand why God was working the way he was. But he did know that God's character would not change. That is very important. I love this little story about Blaise Pascal, a 17th century uh, French theologian, really philosopher too, more a philosopher than theologian perhaps. But uh, he rejected pure reason, just, you know, mere reason as the basis for faith. 
And he went through what was called a, a worldly period in his life, but then later returned to the Bible. And it's interesting, when he died, his servant found this sewn into the jacket that he was wearing. And these words were sewn in the inside of his jacket. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and scholars. <laughs> I guess we know what he's thinking, right? He said, I don't put any stock in these philosophers and these scholars. I put all my stock in the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Uh, I love that. One of the greatest proofs for the God of the Bible is the truth of Israel. What God has prophesied and promised in regard to Israel has been fulfilled and will be fulfilled in redemptive history to the letter. Think about this, just as a real quick overview. Uh, God said they would be overtaken by the Babylonians, as we see him saying here to Habakkuk, which is what troubles him. It happened. He said after 70 years they would return. It happened. He said the Messiah would come to Israel. It happened. He would be despised and rejected. It happened. He said Israel would be scattered out of the land. It happened. He said in the latter days they would return first in blindness. It has happened. And on and on. They are the witness nation. As sure as Yahweh is the eternal, unchanging, covenant, faithful God of Israel. Just as sure as this is true, Israel will not die. Uh, I don't know about the United States. You know, I read an article this week about a guy I really respect, but he, he went a little... Fr- I, I don't know if I really want to totally get on board, but, but he was comparing. He's saying America's not in the prophetic scriptures, and that's true, generally. I found one place, maybe in a secondary sense, in terms of application, maybe. You know, they're in Ezekiel 38. But, but um, he is comparing, like, the traits of Babylon and saying, look at us. Uh, he's comparing the traits of Romans chapter 1, looking at us. And he said, frankly, I think America is toast. It's over. Uh, Prepare for impact. Judgment is coming. Uh, You know, we hope for revival. Yeah, that's true. But boy, uh, we're on a bad course in terms of legalized murder. We've legalized same-sex marriage. I mean, these are very basic things in terms of what the Word of God says. Well, God is God, and he is uh, the eternal, unchanging, faithful God of Israel. And Israel will not die. Other nations may die, but Israel will not die. Uh, What a great statement of faith, by the way. You are from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One, and therefore we will not die. That's a statement of faith on the part of Habakkuk, who's very troubled. By the way, this is the secret to Israel's preservation. Why will they not die? It's because of their God. It's all about their God that keeps them from dying. And then building on this, Habakkuk says, O Lord, that's Yahweh, you have appointed them for judgment. He's talking about his own people. O rock, you have marked them for correction. Note that Habakkuk did not doubt what God had told him. He just had a problem understanding the why God was doing it the way he was doing it. But he didn't doubt it. He believed that uh, judgment was on the way. They were about to experience a major correction. And Babylon was going to be the instrument of that correction. That, That was his struggle. 
But he understands his people, Judah, are headed for disciplinary judgment at the hands of the Babylonians. He understands they've been marked for correction, not annihilation. But I want you to see something here. I love this. Right in the middle of this emphasis on judgment and correction is what? Let's read it. You have appointed them for judgment, and then you have marked them for correction. But what's right in the middle of it? Oh, rock. Oh, rock. I love that. In the midst of this very hard time, Habakkuk recognized God as their rock. Their rock. What a great application. In the midst of the great challenges of life when it doesn't make sense and we're wrestling with it all, right in the middle of all that, just remember, God is our rock. Even when we can't make sense of it all, He's still our rock. The metaphor of rock indicates God is unchanging and immovable. He is the permanent, unshakable refuge for all those who trust in Him. Got your feet on the rock tonight? That's a good place. You say, where can I find security in this crazy old world? Well, only on the rock. That's the only safe, unmovable place. Security is found in God, the rock, in Him alone. And come what may, our God is unshakable. And those who are on the rock are unshakable because of who he is. I love that about God. He's the rock. It was Moses who first called God rock in the book of Deuteronomy. And in fact, five times he referenced God in this way in Deuteronomy chapter 32. And we see 32, 3 and 4. For I proclaim the name of the Lord. I'm talking about the person of God, the name of, of Yahweh. Ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. He is the rock. He is the rock. Remember Jesus' parable uh, where he spoke about the the wise who build their life upon the rock, which will stand uh, when the storms of life come. In comparison to the foolish who build their house upon the sand. For true believers, God is our rock. Our faith is in Him. We build our lives on Him for time and eternity. And God, our rock, is not going anywhere. He's unshakable. He is our secure place of refuge. Verse 13. So, statement of faith. Verse 12. Statement of faith. He's our rock, the eternal God, our holy one. But here's his problem. You see, he's got it down who God is, and he's got it right. But he just can't quite make sense of his understanding of who God is. And now what God has told him in terms of how he's going to work. God, since this is your character, how can you do this? It doesn't make sense to him. So he says, verse 13, you are a pure eyes. It's always kind of interesting when you start uh, schooling God, right? Uh, I want to be very, nobody ever does that actually, but you are of pure eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. And of course he's right here. Uh, why do, so that, here's the question. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously? He's talking about the Chaldeans or the Babylonians and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he. That's us. Um, the Judeans. Remember, Habakkuk has, has just referred to God as the Holy One, as we saw in verse 12. And therefore, he says to God, 
You are pure eyes and to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Right here was his problem. This is his problem. The sense is that God, being holy, cannot look upon evil with approval. And he can't just let it slide. He can't condone wickedness. He can't go along with it. So with this premise in mind, the prophet asks, why do you look, and the idea is to to look on with favor, uh, allowing them to be successful. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously? I mean, why do you do this? And hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he. He cannot understand how his holy God can with certainly permission and, and in a sense approval. Remember, God says, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. God's doing this. How can a holy God use a wicked instrument like Babylon to devour someone less wicked than Judah? That's a good question, right? That's a good theological question, right? You've got, you got somebody over here who needs correction. They're wicked. But somebody much more wicked over here. And God takes this more wicked person to now bring judgment on this person. What? How do we understand this? That's a good theological question. You realize Habakkuk got A's in Bible college. He, he had a good question here. It's a theological dilemma. How can a holy God allow the wicked to swallow up those more righteous than they are? Moody Bible commentary. Clearly, God will never condone evil or wickedness. Yet, how could he use wicked Babylon against Judah? Habakkuk was wrestling with the complex truth that God uses even the wickedness of man to accomplish his own purposes. And he does. Remember Joseph's brothers? They were nasty. I know sibling rivalry, and I know, I know something of this. I'm the oldest of six, and the others are all rascals, but, except for me. But they were so mean to him. I mean, they left him for dead. What did he say? You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Wow, God was somehow able to take this evil and use it for good of all the things. This seemed out of character to Habakkuk. Seemed out of character for God. He could not understand how God could do this without impugning his character. There's a good lesson here, by the way. Systematic theology is good, and I have lots of systematic theology books. And yet there are times when we just can't quite figure it all out. We can't figure out the why. And sometimes it seems contradictory. And yet the ways of God, being so far above us, are completely consistent with who He is and His grand scheme purposes. I know in the end, when it's all said and done, it'll all align perfectly. God is never out of line. If anything's ever out of line, I start with the presupposition my thinking is. Habakkuk's being pretty vocal about it. (laughs) Just doesn't get it, doesn't understand. But he is a man of faith. Remember, he starts from the position of faith in verse 12. Let me back up for just a moment here. A little footnote. Habakkuk's premise assumes that in the eyes of God, Babylon was a much more wicked nation than Judah. That's his premise. 
But I submit to you, that's up for debate. That's up for debate. You see, the greater the light, the more responsible. Judah had a lot of light. Babylon was a very dark place. Judah had the prophets. Babylon had no prophets. So let me ask you, who was more wicked? Sodom? You know, Sodom and Gomorrah, fire from heaven, destroying that place. Who was more wicked? Sodom or Capernaum? You know, the adopted hometown of the Lord Jesus Christ, where he set up his ministry in Galilee. Which was more wicked? Well, those wicked Sodomites, of course. Hold on, partner. Let, Let us consider what Jesus said. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. You see, they were very responsible because of all the light they had. More responsible than Sodom. Be more tolerable for Sodom in the day of judgment than for them. Before God, those most accountable are those who have the greatest light. Certainly Babylon was accountable, but before God, were they really more wicked than Judah? That's interesting to think about. God makes the call on everything. But I wouldn't just assume this is true because Judah had the greater responsibility because of the greater light. Remember how Habakkuk, earlier in our study in chapter 1, went on about the sins in Judah in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4? Remember how twice he emphasized the violence that was going on throughout the land? Remember how he said the law is powerless, meaning the people had no regard for the, the law of God, the word of God, the authority of God? They had it, but they had no regard for it. Now, who is most responsible for God's law? Those who don't know it or those who have it and know it, but don't pay any attention to it? I'm not so sure about trying to press this argument that Babylon was so much more wicked than Judah. I'm not so sure about that argument. Certainly, humanly speaking, they were more ruthless, but they also had much less light. Well, Habakkuk now draws out a metaphorical picture depicting the great wickedness of the Chaldeans. That is the Babylonians. Verse 14. Why do you make men like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? So Habakkuk complains that concerning the Babylonians, God has made the people, his people in particular, to be men like fish of the sea that are caught like helpless creatures. They were like creeping creatures that had no ruler and therefore were helpless. So Israel is made to look like God was not their ruler. And therefore Babylon could just have their way with them. And this doesn't make any sense to him. He's like, why? Why why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this? Verse 15. They take up all of them with a hook. They catch them in their net and they gather them in their dragnet. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Therefore, they sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their dragnet because by them, their share is sumptuous, delicious, and their food plentiful. 
Now, again, he's using metaphorical language here. But he is figuratively describing the ruthless and wicked actions of Babylon. And he lays it all out here before God, saying, look at how wicked they are. They catch people like fish with no regard for human dignity. They have a wide net and they just bring them in. And then they celebrate. Notice they rejoice and are glad. Oh, they're celebrating their conquests with great joy and, and, and gladness. They're not sorry about being so ruthless and wicked. Oh, no. They celebrate. And then he says they sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their dragnet. Because by them, their share is sumptuous and their food plentiful. The net and the dragnet here symbolically represent their warfare equipment, their military power, which enables them to catch people. They, in effect, worship their instruments of war power. And we have noted previously in verse 11 that their own might is their God. That's ESV, particularly translates it exactly that way. Their own might is their God. So they idolatrously worship their own military power. J.E. Evans summarizes this. In this comparison, the world was the sea, the nation was the fishes, Nebuchadnezzar was the fisherman, the net was the military might of the Chaldean, by which he was able to gain great wealth through through the conquest. Again, Habakkuk is describing the Babylonians in metaphorical terms, emphasizing their ruthless wickedness saturated in great pride, idolatrous pride. Bible knowledge commentary makes this application. Idolatry is not limited to those who bring sacrifices or burn incense to inanimate objects. People of position, power, or prosperity often pay homage to their business or agency that provided them their coveted status. It becomes their constant obsession, even their God. Good application. This is the emphasis here with Babylon. Their God was really their military success. Their own military power. In effect, they worshipped themselves because of their own power. And their ego thought that they were a self-made people. As, uh, as seen in verse 5, it was really God uh, who had, in his sovereignty, allowed them to be uh, Raised up. Well, pride goes before a fall. That's what the Bible teaches. But now in Habakkuk's day, it seemed like these Babylonians were invincible and unstoppable. Verse 17 Shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay nations without pity? This is his question. Using this fishing imagery, they in effect just keep emptying their net only to fill it again. And again, and thus continue to slay the nations without pity. They didn't care. There's no mercy. Habakkuk wonders if this is just going to continue on unchecked. How can such a wicked people, more wicked in his estimation than his own people, how can the holy God of Israel, the faithful holy God of Israel, how can he leave this unchecked? This is the perplexity of Habakkuk. And so... He's laid it all out before God, what has really been troubling him. And he says now in chapter 2, verse 1, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. So he continues to use figurative language here. 
indicating that he, in effect, is seeing himself as the prophetic watchman for the people. And he's wondering what God's going to say so that he can then, you know, bring that, shout that out to the people. A rampart was a watchtower, often on a city wall, uh, from which the watchman could see danger approaching the city. And when the watchman saw it, then he would alert the people. This is how Habakkuk saw himself as a watchman waiting to see what the Lord would say to him so that he then could reveal it to the people as, as a, a seer or, or a prophet. Well, he brought his consternation to the Lord and now he has positioned himself to wait and see what God will, will say. What is the divine response going to be? This, in turn, would determine what his response would be. Now, there's a difference between sinful doubting and grappling with things that just don't seem to make sense to us. I see Habakkuk in the, in the, uh, the latter here. He was, not, he was not a sinful doubter. I mean, you see, he starts from a position of faith, verse 12. But he was grappling with things that just didn't seem to make sense to him. Lots of God's people have gone through struggles like this. Maybe you have. You know, Job couldn't understand. We got this whole long book of Job, you know, 42 chapters. I mean, Job, I'm trying to figure it out. Doesn't make sense. And he's demanding audience with God. Couldn't understand. The psalmist often asked the why question. Why? Habakkuk couldn't understand how the character of God could mesh with him using the wicked Babylonians as the instrument of judgment against Judah. I mean, they all knew how wicked these Babylonians were. Well, there are many such things that we often have a hard time understanding. Uh, we have to realize we have only three-pound brains, and we only see a very small part of the equation, ultimately. But I think it's okay to bring it to God. Uh, you know, lightning didn't come down and zap Habakkuk saying, you know, you're completely out of line. Uh, I think it's okay to ask thoughtful, honest questions. Uh, if we do so reverently. But then we must also follow the example of Habakkuk and take our place at the, at the watch post, so to speak, and wait to see what God will show us. I mean, I think he was, he was honest enough to say, okay, well, I'm going to back off now, and I'm just going to wait and see how God, how God answers this. I've laid it out, my, my consternation and what I'm rap, wrestling with. Now I'm just going to wait for God to show me. I think we can do that. You know, if you lack wisdom, what the Bible say for you to do? Ask. Ask God. Ask Him to show you. Uh, he'll show you what you need to know in terms of principles. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. Love these verses. Where God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. It's always good to just keep that in mind. It's not like they're just a little, a little higher. So much higher. So much higher. And our natural way of thinking about things is so often completely out of sync with God's ways. Well, the doctrine behind all others in terms of the outworking of God's mysterious plan is the doctrine of God's sovereignty. Really, that's where Habakkuk started in his statement of faith. And God is able, you see, I don't know how he does it, but he's able to use bad actors for his ultimately good purposes. That's an important principle in theology. See the cross, for example. 
Was it, was it, real, was it righteousness that was putting Jesus on trial and how they did all that? It was all, no, it was wicked, wicked, wicked. And yet God used it for ultimate good, for you and for me, for all eternity. Luther said, quote, even the devil is God's devil. Think about that for a moment. God is sovereign even over the activity of the devil. Someone once spoke of the rustle of God's cloak as he passes across the stage of history. And if you listen carefully, you can't miss it. God has his way in all things. God's sovereignty is the fundamental doctrine for the whole of life. You might argue with this and say, well, why did this have to happen? Why did that person have to die so young? And this old rascally one over here lived to be 115. How come? Nobody knows the answers to these kind of questions. We come back to the sovereignty of God. And we rest, rest there. He is sovereign. And faith builds on the character of God. Not our circumstances. I mean, if you're going to attach your faith to just circumstances, you're going to be all over the place. Up and down all over the place all the time. Faith is attached to the character of God. That's where Habakkuk started. Couldn't understand things. And he's honest about his wrestlings and that's okay. And yet he knew what he knew about God. That's the starting place. And ultimately, as we will continue on in the book, we will see it's also the ending place. And what happens in between? Okay, I might not understand that, but God doesn't change. And that's where my faith is found. He is the eternal, the holy, the unchanging, sovereign God who can be trusted. Faith can rest in who God is, knowing that ultimately his ways are consistent with who he is, even when we can't understand it. And that's what God is teaching Habakkuk. And that's where the book goes next. What's the next section? Lord willing, next week, next Sunday night, the just shall live by faith. Habakkuk, here's what I want you to know. You're right in what you say about me, God would say in verse 12. The just shall live by faith. Even when you can't understand it, you come back to the nature, the character of God, the God that we know is revealed in the scriptures. And that's where we rest. Well, let's stop there tonight and have our closing song, and then I'll close this in a word of prayer.